Hebrews chapter 8. Cruising right along. Um, the Lord's been just doing some neat things um, the last few weeks, just giving the elders vision for uh, just uh, this time, this place in our church's history. And uh, it's an exciting thing. Um, we're not ready to totally announce it yet. We're praying through things. We're spending hours in discussion of things. And um, uh, just good stuff, really exciting things. As uh, I know you might be wondering, you know, okay, so we're in chapter 8, and there's 13 chapters here we're going to be going through. And uh, what's next? And um, we're excited for what God has next. But he's still kind of molding and morphing that uh, to what it might look like. Uh, and it'll be wonderful, and um, just be in prayer for the elders, we would ask, as they go through this process of um, hearing from the Lord, and looking and searching the scriptures, and then trying to develop a plan of, developing a plan of action as to move forward after this summer. So, uh, exciting, exciting stuff, and we are in Hebrews chapter 8 this evening, uh, which has been titled, A Better Covenant. A Better Covenant. The longest shadow on earth is not mine, if you can believe it. <laughs> I'm tall, but not that tall. It's believed to be the shadow that is cast by El Piton Peak in Tenerife, which is the largest island of the Canary Islands. El Piton Peak rises abruptly 12,200 feet above the Atlantic Ocean, and at sunrise and sunset produces a shadow nearly 150 miles in length. Isn't that incredible? Well, as long as the shadow might be at El Piton Peak, we're going to see tonight in Hebrews chapter 8 that the shadow cast by the Old Testament by the books of the Old Testament, by the law of the Old Testament, by the prophets of the Old Testament, by the types of the Old Testament, the shadows cast from the Old Testament go on for thousands of years and find their fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We've been looking at that in the weeks past. We're going to really see it and actually spoken forth to us in verse 5 of our text this evening as we're in the book of Hebrews, which has been called the most Old Testament of the New Testament books. The Old Testament, it's been said, and the New Testament are like Acts 1 and Act 2 of a drama or of a play. In Act 1, you see a problem and a dilemma unfold. In this case, Act 1, the Old Testament, we have sin and we have sacrifices put in place. We have a system put in place that seems to be pointing to something more. Something more, even specifically in the prophets, we see this something more is, is told, he's coming. He's coming. And we see the solution and we see the hero come in in the second act of the play called the New Testament, which in this case is God himself coming and dying to take away the sins of the world. The Old Testament, it's been said, is Jesus Christ concealed. And in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we find Jesus Christ revealed. In the book of Acts, we see Jesus preached in the epistles and all the letters. 
First Corinthians and, or uh, Romans and First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, Hebrews is an epistle. All the way up to the book of Jude and through the book of Jude, we have Jesus explained. And then in the book of Revelation, we have Jesus expected. All of that coming out of Christ concealed in the Old Testament. And as we looked last week in chapter 7, and if you're there in your Bible, you can just kind of hop back. Maybe it's just one page. Maybe it's on the same page. In verse 22, we see that Jesus has become surety of a better covenant. What's that mean? Well, you might notice on our graphic up here on the screen that the book of Hebrews, a theme that, that has been called over Hebrews is that Jesus is better Or he's better than you think. And in this book, so far, we've seen that Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the priesthood of the Old Testament that's through the line of Aaron. He's better. And this is written to a group of people who were thinking of going back to Judaism, to the old system, to the old ways. If they were Irish, they'd be going back to the old country or something. I don't know. Back to the four-leaf clover. Instead, they'd be going back to the system and the rules and the machine that is religious of Judaism. And so the author says, don't do it. Don't go back. Don't you see all those things are just the shadow? It's a long shadow. It's a 120-mile long shadow. It's a 2,000-year-old shadow. It's a shadow, though. It's a shadow. Don't go back to the shadow. Jesus is the fulfillment of the shadow. He's the one that's casting it. And so it says here, as we get into more of how Jesus is a better priest, and and it kind of encompasses a whole area of the priesthood, we see tonight in chapter 8 that uh, he has a better covenant All right, a better covenant. He's the surety of a better covenant we just read. He has a better sanctuary we'll see next week. He has a better sacrifice we'll see in the weeks to come and a little bit this evening. He's better. He's better. And I know you might not think about, you know, well, I'm really being tempted right now to go back to, uh, you know, Israel and move there and start killing bulls and burning them, you know, like that's probably not a big temptation in 2013 Prineville. But we have a a very similar temptation and that we want to do external things to make our way to be right with God. Even after salvation, we default to a performance-based Christianity We forget the new covenant, the better covenant, and we want to go back to the old covenant and really going to try to do it now, you know, and and, hey, this time I've got Jesus, so I'm saved, but now I'm going to try to do it still. And it's like, man, like Galatians chapter three, verse three tells us like, I just want to know this. Were you perfected by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Well, if it's by faith, then don't be so stupid and foolish to think that you can continue on by working it out yourself. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Read the next verse there in Philippians. It is he who is in you, who wills and does according to his good pleasure. 
Don't go back to the old covenant. Don't go back to the old system. Even post-Christ, don't go back to it. There's a new covenant. It's a superior covenant. It's a better covenant. Well, first of all, what's a covenant? A covenant, it's a pledge. It's a treaty. It's a standing contract between two partners. Marriage is a covenant. Salvation in Jesus Christ is based upon a covenant that he fulfills and buys and pays for and does everything himself. In verses 1 through 6 tonight, we continue on with this thought of the priesthood of Jesus being better than Aaron's priesthood through the tribe of Levi. And the author leads us to the next reason why Jesus is better than all the old Jewish stuff. His covenant is better. In verse 1, we see his covenant is ministered from a greater priest. It's ministered from a greater place, verses 2 through 5, from a heavenly true tabernacle, not from an earthly tabernacle. It's ministered from greater promises, verses 6 through 13, has a greater declaration, has a greater explanation, and it has a greater conclusion, we'll see in verse 13. But first in verse 1, this new covenant is ministered to us from a greater priest. Let's read it, verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. I love verse 1. I just love the way the author puts it out for us. Like, okay, we've had all this hubbub about Melchizedek in verse 6. And and when he first said the word Melchizedek in chapter 5, he says, I know your brain just exploded. We got to stop for a second. I got to encourage you. It's time to grow up as a Christian. It's time to mature. Yeah, this idea of Melchizedek being this incredible type of the one who's to come, whose priesthood isn't from the tribe of, of Levi. Perhaps this is even a Christophany in the Old Testament, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus pre-incarnate. Maybe, sorta, maybe. We looked at all that last week. He says, it's going to blow your mind, but I'm just trying to tell you, there's a priesthood that we have as Christians, and it's not, excuse me, Uh, Sometimes you want to swallow and talk at the same time and it doesn't work. It's not through the loins of Aaron. It's of a different order, an order that was pre-law, an order that was there with Abraham. And Abraham saw it and testified it and partook of this priesthood. When he had Melchizedek represent him to God and God to him, this Jesus of the tribe of Judah, he is from this priesthood order, priestly order of Melchizedek. And this is the main point of what I'm trying to tell you, he says in verse one. So if this is your first night here and I said Melchizedek and it was like something just came out the back of your head and is dribbling down your ear, maybe, I don't know. Don't worry. He just summarizes it for us in verse one. The main point of what I'm trying to say here, get it. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And so the Jew that would kind of be picked on by his friends, what are you doing following this no-name preacher from Galilee? You know, 
who is this guy? A carpenter, you know, he died on a Roman execution implement. Who are you following, man? Look what we got in Jerusalem. Look at the temple. Josephus said the glory of the temple could be seen for 15 miles before you came into Jerusalem. You could just see it shining on the, on the hill with the, with the gold and the billions of dollars worth of gold and the fire and the smoke coming up. And you'd hear the sounds of worship coming up. Look what we've got. We've got the bells on the priestly garments, and we've got the smoke rising. We've got the bells and the smells. And what do you got? What do you got? And Simeon, as he's getting picked on, could say, hey, we have a high priest. We have a better high priest. And we have a high priest that doesn't need to enter in all the time and just repeat this sick cycle of sacrifice and sin and sacrifice and sin and sacrifice and sin and sacrifice and sin and ooba dooba dooba for thousands and thousands of years. We have a high priest who went in once for all and he didn't sacrifice the blood of bulls and goats, but he sacrificed himself. And then he didn't stay on the altar, but he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven in victory. And now he has sat down. Why has he sat down? Because it is finished. Now, the incredible thing is where he's sitting, he still works for us. He still intercedes for us. We've seen that all throughout Hebrews and we'll kind of give a big hug to all of this tonight as we go through the scripture. I love what J.B. Phillips says. Now to sum it all up, we have an ideal high priest. Such has been described in chapters past. First Timothy tells us that there is one God and one mediator between God and man. The man, Jesus Christ who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. This mediator, that means a bridge. It's Jesus who fills the gap. There's a giant chasm between us. It's called sin between us and God. There's no way we can cross that chasm in our own strength. Enter in Jesus Christ, who is the bridge that we can cross to get to God the Father. That mediator, that bridge is the man Christ Jesus. Arthur Pink says this in his commentary. He has, as priest, obtained from God a more excellent ministry than Aaron's. By how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant. He is not only priest, but mediator. Priest because he's mediator. Mediator because he's priest. It is by his priestly office and work that he exercises his mediatorship. Standing between two parties and reconciling them, he thus combines his own person, in his own person, what was divided between two under the old economy. Moses being the typical mediator, Aaron the typical surety. In Jesus, we have both a mediator and the surety. We have a high priest who's become the guarantee of the better covenant. He's the mediator, he's the bridge because he's our priest, and he's the priest because he's our mediator. He's the fulfillment of everything that we needed and that we were told in the old covenant we would get. 
He has sat down. And in Act 1 in the Old Testament, you knew those priests never sat down. So when you would read the new act in the second act, you'd say, why is he sitting down? He's sitting down because it is finished. Someone came and gave a once-for-all sacrifice that nullifies and makes obsolete the preoccupation with the shadow of the reality. And that was Jesus. Alistair Begg says, Christ's absence from earth now is necessary for him being who he is and having done what he's done. It's necessary that he's not here anymore. He went and ascended so that he could sit down and truly declare the finished work of Christ. And so we read in verse 1, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. We've seen this already in Hebrews, as Hebrews quotes Psalm 110 a few times, where the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, Paul says, I do not cease to pray for you or to make mention of you always in my prayers. And there in Ephesians 1 verse 19, it says, So that you might, I'm praying, that you might know what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Okay, now just pause for a second. Paul always prays for the Ephesians that they might know how much power God has given to those who believe. Okay, so what? So what? What's that got to do with Jesus sitting down? Okay, well, he goes on to say, he worked this power in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Radical power took place when Jesus ascended in victory and sat down at the right hand of the Father. And that power is given to those who believe. Ephesians chapter, or Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. We've studied it, how many weeks ago was that? Some six weeks ago or something. It says, in all things, Jesus had to be made like his brethren. He had to become a man, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He became a man so that he could be that high priest and ascend to his priestly role, continuing his priestly role, interceding for the people. To quote Pink again, now that intercession must be made in heaven at God's right hand. We say must for the Old Testament types require it. All the shadows that are pointing to Jesus require it. Aaron had to carry incense as well as blood into the Holy of Holies. We're going to see tonight, that's exactly what Jesus is doing now. He is in the Holy of Holies. He's brought blood and he's brought incense, prayers. Okay? Had Christ remained on earth after his resurrection, only half of his priestly work had been performed. His ascension was necessary for the maintenance of God's governmental rights, for the vindication of the Redeemer himself, 
and for the well-being of his people. That what he had begun on earth might be continued, consummated, and fully accomplished in heaven. The expiatory sacrifice of Christ had been offered once for all. But he must take his place as an intercessor at God's right hand if his church should enjoy the benefits of it. He's our high priest. And he's at the right hand of the Father, just as the priest would go in and go to the mercy seat and place the blood on the mercy seat for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus is at the mercy seat. He sits on the mercy seat and he makes intercession for all that he represents. He's our great high priest. The Levitical high priests, even when they entered into the holiest place once a year, only stood for a brief time before the symbol of God's throne. But Jesus sits on the throne of the divine majesty in the heaven itself, and this forever and ever and ever. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He's the archetype, the fulfillment of the type. He's the one that the shadow is being cast from in the Old Testament. So this new covenant that we'll get into in a little bit is ministered by a greater priest, verse 1, and from a greater place, verses 2 through 5. Let's look at verse 2. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. So, Jesus, our heavenly priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, is a minister in the true sanctuary. That word sanctuary literally means holy of holies. So, Jesus is our priest ministering in the true holy of holies. And the true tabernacle that was not made by the hands of men sewn together with beaver pelts and things like that, you know, but it was made by the hands of God himself. And chapter nine will show us a better sanctuary, not temporal, not earthly, but one as verse two says that the Lord has erected and not man. God made this tabernacle, this temple, not Moses. It was set up by the Lord, not set up by man. Verse 3 says, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. So, as we read Act 1, as you read the Old Testament, as you read the first five books of the Bible, you see that the priests were always going in there with something. Even before the temple and before the tabernacle, you've got this beautiful picture of Jesus, this beautiful type. As the Lord tells Abraham, take your son your only son whom you love and go to the mount called Moriah and sacrifice him there. You might not know this, but Mount Moriah is the very mountain in Jerusalem where Jesus was nailed to a cross. It's the same rock. It's the same bedrock. It's the same pinnacle where the temple was built uh, thousands of years earlier before Christ 
where the blood of bulls and goats was shed, pointing towards Jesus. And even before that, it's the same rock, it's the same mountain where David purchased a threshing floor from Arana. And he said, I will sacrifice some bulls here to stop a plague that's killing the whole city because of my sin. And it was there that on Arana's threshing floor that a sacrifice was made that stopped the killing plague. And thousands of years earlier, it's the place where Abraham took Isaac to sacrifice him. You know, Isaac left early in the morning, taking the fire, taking the knife, taking the wood, taking the servants, and they went to the base of the mountain of Moriah. And it was there that Abraham told the servants, stop, myself and the lad will return. What was going to (laughs) happen? And it says that he put the wood upon his son's back And the sun carried the wood up the hill, the same hill that Jesus, the son of God, would carry wood to be sacrificed. And as the sun is packing up the wood, he says, dad, the knife I see and the wood I see and the fire I see. But where is the sacrifice? And Abraham says, my son, the Lord will provide For himself the sacrifice. And the literal language is, my son, the Lord will provide himself as the sacrifice. And as Abraham tied his son to the fire and raised the knife to kill Isaac, an angel said, stop. I was testing you. Look over here in the thicket. There's a ram caught by the horns. And it was there that Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And he did just that. When he provided his son, his only son, whom he loved, to pack the cross, the wooden Roman implement of execution, up the hill, to have his blood shed for the remission, for the forgiveness, for the atonement of sins. This type is a shadow that points to the fulfillment of the type. Everyone knew that as you would look to the Old Testament. Everyone looked in act one and saw they always had to have some kind of sacrifice. And if the earthly high priest had to have something to offer, as Hebrews 5.1 says, then the heavenly high priest, the better high priest, certainly should have something to offer. Ephesians 5.2 says that Jesus loved us and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. What did this high priest take in to sacrifice? Himself. It was himself that was an offering to God. Verses 4 and 5, For if he were on earth, he would not be a high priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law who served the copy and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. Everything in the earthly tabernacle that you read about in the book of Exodus, that you read about in Leviticus, that you read about in Deuteronomy, 
Everything in the earthly tabernacle was an outline, was a copy, was a sketch. It was a duplicate. It was a shadow of the heavenly tabernacle. It was just a sketch. It was just a copy, a photocopy. That's why God told Moses to follow the exact details, to follow the exact blueprint as he laid it out. Because it was a copy of something bigger, far, far greater than what was just happening in the here and now in the physical realm. So this meant that the Levitical priests were only working in the model. And Jesus is currently conducting his priestly duties in the actual real tabernacle. I have a picture for you to put up that, uh, I don't know if you got it there, Tina. She's probably wondering, what is this uh, leg? Yeah, what is this Lego picture? Okay. The Rolls-Royce brand is known all over the world, not only for its luxury line of vehicles, but also for a tremendously powerful jet engine the company produces. It's the Boeing 787 Dreamliner. It's called the Trent 1000, massive turbofan engines weighing 12,710 pounds, 15 feet in length, have a diameter of only of over 9 feet. These things are huge, incredibly intricate. And so when Rolls-Royce commissioned the British company Bright Blocks to create a Lego replica that would display various, at various air shows, the company Lego jumped at the chance to build what's been called the most complex Lego model ever created. The construction of this model took over eight weeks to complete Conducted by a team of over four individuals, it's 152,455 Lego bricks. Doesn't seem like a huge amount until you consider that the replica is as close as possible to the original. The total engine is comprised of over 160 different components that go together. It's said to be an exact half-size replica of the units that were installed on the Dreamliner. To ensure the accuracy of the model, Rolls-Royce produced a team of engineers to consult with Lego that resulted in the awesomeness you see in the picture beside us. Lego is known for different models as the company uh, has, uh, has asked it to do more engines now for them for display purposes. Now, this Lego model is not a functional display for the fact that it produces no thrust. There's no power there. And like this Lego engine replica of a Dreamliner Rolls Royce, the old covenant was really, really cool, but it had no power. It had no power. Judaism was a toy religion. It was played out in a dollhouse. It was a worship temple for ants. It had to be at least three times that big. In Revelation, we see the throne room of God, the real tabernacle. Read it. Read Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. When you read in Exodus about the building of the tabernacle, you see 
that it's just like a little teeny tiny model of the real thing. It's kind of cute when you read Revelation, when you read about the altar and the incense and the mercy seat and the Lamb of God who still appears as a lamb that was slain. Colossians tells us that the new moons uh, feasts in the Old Testament and the Sabbaths were all a shadow of the things to come. They were just a model. They were just a, a toy, if you will. But Colossians tells us that the substance is Christ. The substance is Christ. And in two chapters, in Hebrews 10.1, we'll start the chapter out in verse 1 when it says, The law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never, with the same sacrifices that are offered year after year after year, it can never make those who come perfect. Why not? Because it has no power. More on that in chapter 9. More on the copy, the duplicate of the heavenly things in chapter 9. But verse 6 tells us, now our high priest has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. Now remember the theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better. And there's times in this book where the word better is used. Underline it. Better covenants. Better promises. Jesus, our high priest, is not only a better priest, he has a more excellent ministry we see in verse 6. That's like saying better ministry. <laughs> he has a more excellent ministry. He's mediator of a better covenant that's established on better promises. Let's turn in our Bibles tonight to 2 Corinthians 3 verse 4. We want to compare and contrast the new covenant with the old covenant. 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 18. Let's actually go to verse 6, 2 Corinthians 3, 6, and we'll just go a little at the end of verse 5. It says, our sufficiency is from God, 2 Corinthians 3, 6, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. So he's the great high priest of the new covenant. He's made us ministers of this new covenant. Uh, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So what do we know already about this new covenant that our high priest ministers? Well, we see that it's not of the letter, but it's of the spirit, okay? The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. We'll see why the letter kills in a little bit. Verse 7, but if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, pause. Verse 7 tells us that this new covenant was a ministry of death. What was it written on? Stones, right? It was, was it eternal or was it dying? It was dying, it was passing away. 
Uh, we see at the end of verse, uh, or excuse me, at verse 8, it says, well, then how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Paul's getting into a little bit of a better theme here, right? More glorious, better glorious, okay? That's how I have to say it. For the ministry of condemnation had glory, if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. So the old covenant was a ministry of condemning, condemnation. Even that had glory. What about this new ministry, this new covenant, the covenant of righteousness? It will excel much more in glory. Verse 10, for even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. You can't even compare them. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses. Are you seeing these compare and contrast? Moses, he couldn't use great boldness of speech. He had to cover up himself and kind of hide as he read it because the glory was passing away. It was still glorious, but it was passing away. We have a better hope because we should be out preaching it is what Paul is saying. We should use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded. For even until the same day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of Moses of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. Even this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. The, compar- the contrasts, I should say, are astounding in 2 Corinthians here. This new covenant, this new ministry that our high priest has has won for us and is doing for us and has actually made us ministers of, it is so much more glorious, so much more powerful. It's a ministry of the Holy Spirit, not of rules and regulations and law and do this and don't do that. It's a work of the transforming of the Holy Spirit. And that's how verse 18 concludes, is we don't have to cover ourselves. We look at it all with unveiled face. We're looking at the glory of the Lord, and by the Spirit of God, we are transformed so that we can live out this new covenant by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says in Luke twenty two twenty, 20, he takes the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. He says, there is a new covenant. It's been bought. It's been paid for by my Blood, And that's why chapter 7, verse 22 of Hebrews says that Jesus is the surety. Jesus is the guarantee of this better covenant. Verse 7, for if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. The first covenant was faulty. Today I went down to our fairly new computer to study and we've had it since November I think and 
And uh, I mean, it's like my like space station, you know, I've got three screens and I just like, you know, as I'm studying, I'm just like, you know, as the Holy Spirit's doing it. It's just, it's so great to have three screens, you know, I've got sermon here, study resources here and here. And it's just like, oh, you just orchestra of the Lord preparing this, you know, and it's like, I go down there and I'm like, You know, it's not happening. Power supply, dead. Okay. Lindsay on the phone for 50 minutes trying to get a new one, and she did. So, uh, anyways, faulty. So new and even still so shiny. Still smells like new plastic. You know, you're like, what is wrong with you? You know, it's not working. There's no glow. There's no spark. There's no power. Okay. The first covenant was faulty. Why? Because there's no, you don't have to say it Scottish or Irish or whatever, there's no power. Feel free to, though. Exodus 19.5, when the law was given, the Lord says, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. If you do this, obeying my voice, keeping my covenant, then you'll be the special treasure. The law and its morality was blameless, but in saving a people, it was defective, therefore it is faulty. Verse 8, we see where the faultiness lies. It's not in the law itself. Verse 8 says, because finding fault with them. The fault wasn't with the covenant. The fault wasn't with the law. It was with those who couldn't obey his voice and couldn't keep his covenant. Finding fault with them, he says in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. It's a great passage to memorize. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Jacob. Who was the fault with? The faultiness lied with the men, with the women. They were not going to keep their end of the bargain, and God knew it. Heck, before Moses had even brought the covenant down the first time, they'd already broken it by worshiping a golden calf as their earrings just happened to get magnetically drawn into the fire, and a golden calf popped out, according to Aaron's reckoning of what took place. The Lord knew they were going to break it. He had to remake the stones and rewrite it with his finger and get it down there again, because they broke it before they even got it. No surprise that they couldn't do it. It was all a shadow anyways of the new covenant to come. Romans 7, let's flip over there. Romans 7 elaborates on this and tells us where the faultiness was. Romans 7, 5. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Wait a second. The sinful passions were aroused by what now? 
HBO? The interweb? By the law? How's that work? But now, verse 6, we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? That oldness of the letter, that thing that it says aroused my passions to sin? Is the law sin then if it's doing that? Certainly not. On the contrary, I wouldn't have known sin except through the law. For I would have not have known, for I would have not known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Well, where was the error? What was the problem? Verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Guys, it's in Romans 7 that we see how sinful sin is. Sinful is so sinful. I wish I had a great sin, sin, sin. Glad I don't have a list tonight. Sin is so sinful that it takes the law, which is holy and good, and uses it as a launching pad for sin. That's what it does. Sin is so sinful, it takes opportunity by the commandment and then produces in us all manner of evil desire. Don't covet. I think I will. Don't murder. Didn't know that's what it was called, but I'm going to do it now. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, verse 11, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not, but sin, that it might appear sin, was producing in me, producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Again, that's how bad sin is. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. And then he goes on to say, oh, wretched man that I am. You know, he goes on into that great, oh, why am I not doing the things that I want to do? And why am I doing the things I don't want to do? Oh, wretched man that I am. It's interesting that in Romans chapter 7, the word I is found 19 times. Let's just all say that together. I, 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 okay. And what do you get when you're so wrapped up in I? You get, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this? Ah. Go to chapter 8 of Romans. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Who do not walk according to the I, 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 but according to the he, 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 he. I'm not laughing here. I'm going he. And I love Romans 8, 3. See if I still have it kind of sort of memorized. For what the law could not do 
in that it was weak in the flesh. Where was the law weak? It was in me. I I was the weakest link. What the law couldn't do and that it was weak in the flesh, God did by sending his only son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus did it. Jesus fulfilled it. And then Jesus sent us the Holy Spirit that we might fulfill it also by the reliance on the power, what he provides. The old covenant was based on man's work and performance, a work and performance that man could never do. Man would always mess up. Marcus Dodds, a great Old Testament commentator, says, the old covenant was faulty because it didn't provide for enabling the people to live up to the terms and conditions of it. It was faulty in as much as it did not sufficiently provide against their faultiness. I want to read that last part again. It was faulty in as much as it did not sufficiently provide against their faultiness. In Genesis 15, God makes a different covenant with Abram, a a, a covenant about the nation, a covenant about his seed, a covenant about generations after him, even though he was an old man and had never had any kids. And Genesis 15 says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And then he gives this promise about your descendants will be like the stars in the, in the sky. And they're going to bless all the other nations through your seed, actually, one person that comes out of you, Abram. All the nations of the world will be blessed. In verse 6, Abram believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness that second. Righteousness came through belief. And then after that, the Lord says, bring to me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought all these things to him, cut them in two down the middle, placed each piece opposite each other. This was common for covenants. They would would just slaughter the animal, cut it in half, and, and put it apart from each other, all these different animals, and you would walk down the middle and make your covenant, giving the ring or shaking the hand, and it would essentially mean, the Lord do this to me if I break this covenant. So Abram's getting ready, cutting all these things, putting them out, there's blood everywhere, and he's getting ready to shake hands with God about this, in you all the nations of the world will be blessed, and he's getting ready, and the Lord doesn't show up, and the Lord doesn't show up, So Abram falls asleep, and while he's sleeping, the Lord appears and goes through by himself. He says, this is a covenant that doesn't rely on you, Abram. This is something I'm going to do. And that's pointing towards another covenant, a covenant that doesn't rely upon our performance, but the performance of the one who sealed the deal with his blood just to read the last bit after Abram fell asleep. It came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. So our external religion for anyone here who's a religious man or a woman, our external religion that we've been holding on to, it might not be bad in and of itself, 
But the reason it's bad is because it doesn't deal with our faultiness. And that's why you still feel the burden of your sin. That's why you still do not have your conscience cleansed. Is because you haven't rested on the finished work of Jesus Christ. He has done it. He is our high priest. He's the minister of a new and better covenant built upon new and better sacrifices, a greater sacrifice. And only this sacrifice by this priest has the ability, we'll see it in chapter 10, to cleanse our conscience, wherever that is, from dead works so that we might serve the living God. So if you're religious, you're faulty. You're faulty. Cast aside the religion and come to the new covenant. All of the terms of the Mosaic covenant that was based upon performance were rendered null and void when Israel broke the covenant because they broke it. The new covenant would provide for an internal renovation of their hearts. We're going to read that in just a little bit. When the people couldn't live up to the standards of God, he didn't lower the standards to match their abilities, but he determined he would transform the people. He didn't say, man, I can kind of tell that Ten Commandments has been too hard for you. Let's cut it down to five. You know, this once a year thing where the priest would go in on the Day of Atonement, you're needing a little more than that. Let's make it biannually. You know, that means twice a year, right? I always get that wrong dual annual. Uh, Okay, thanks. Thanks, accountant wife. He said, that's not what I'm going to do. I am going to save. I am going to justify. I am going to make holy. I am going to cleanse the conscience. I'm going to transform something the old covenant never did. In verses 8 through 12 here in Hebrews chapter 8, the Lord talks about this future new covenant. I like to call this part a new heart and a new start. In verse 9, this new covenant is not according to the covenant that I've made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We have a new heart shown here, a new covenant that's not written on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the heart, tablets of the minds. Verse 11 says, None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of these to the greatest of these. We will know God, his will he will become intuitive to us. There's a prophecy of Isaiah 54, 13. Your children shall be taught by the Lord. This is unlike Scientology. As NPR did an expose on the Church of Scientology, they focused on this aspect of knowledge within the cult. The key to progress in the Church of Scientology is making your way to different levels of knowledge, and it costs a lot of money. You have an introductory class for $50 where you find out all about yourself. Then you move forward to stage two for $150. Stage three costs $3,000. And if you finally graduate to a level of having the Church of Scientology even explaining to you the origin of life, You'll be paying 
some $10,000. One couple upon, on NPR confessed to the fact that in a period of the first five years, they spent $100,000 trying to gain the necessary knowledge to triumph in the church. There's 23 stages. Tom Cruise is there. He's got a little cashola. You see, Christianity tells us in this new covenant, we will know our God because he will reveal himself to us by the Holy Spirit. We'll know him. Doesn't mean we won't grow and mature and understand the scriptures, but we'll know God. He's revealing himself to us. No one comes to the Lord unless he draws him. It's something that the Lord does. The Masonic cult, if you will, we know that's what it's become, perhaps what it's always been, has this ritual as the same thing, a ritual of knowledge and darkness and blackness. Stage one, everybody's in. Stage two, a special handshake. By the time you get to the end stage, you're spending so much money. It's the same in Mormonism. A child tells you about Mormonism, and you can already tell that there's a progress through certain stages of knowledge until you finally reach these priestly functions that allow you to know, quote-unquote, real truth. Not necessary in the new covenant. A day will come, Jeremiah 31, 31. The day will come, Ezekiel, what is it, 33, 33 maybe even? Where I will write myself on their heart, and they will know me. In Christianity, whether you're a boy, a girl, young or old, you can know God. No secret passages, no hidden chants, no secret rooms. The Lord Jesus Christ, you'll know him. From the least to the greatest, the youngest to the old, the dumbest to the brightest, we will know. With the same book, the same spirit, the same truth. With the cults, there's always these special secret passages, rooms, and knowledge. But we can know our God. Have you ever heard of anyone having a personal relationship with Muhammad? Have a conversation with someone at the bookstore like, oh, I'm, getting a, I'm having a personal relationship with Confucius. It's not happening. This is something that's beautifully Christian. And this is something that is really the crux of Christianity. Knowing God, being reconciled to God. Where the Spirit of God puts the knowledge of God in our hearts. Verse 12, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. A new heart, and here we have a new start. Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Romans eleven twenty seven quotes Isaiah 59 when it says, This is my covenant with them when I forgive their sins. If you're a sinner like me, knowing that there is forgiveness of sins is incredible. It's incredible. It's something the Buddhists don't understand. The way that they earn forgiveness of sins is by self-effort. Trying to abolish desires in their life. It's called the Dhaka. Buddha's dying words himself were, strive without ceasing. There's no forgiveness in Buddhism. The Hindus don't have forgiveness. They just have karma. They eat the fruit of your wrongdoing. There's, there's no forgiveness. 
They live life in this uh, endless cycle called Sarah. I'm probably saying it wrong. Sorry, Sarah. (laughs) Different. Spelled different, I think, too. Reincarnation in different times over and over again. There's no escape and there's no possibility of forgiveness. And that's why the gospel needs to be preached. Forgiveness is foreign to the cults. In Islam, the Quran has no mention of forgiveness. The symbol of sin is scales. The bad and the good. And hopefully by the end of the life, the good will outweigh the bad. What's our symbol? Not scales, but a cross. A cross that is an empty cross. And why is it empty? Because he's left, he's risen, he's ascended, and now he's seated. Why is he seated? Because the work is done. And if you've come through these doors tonight and you don't know Christ, you've never been forgiven of your sins, you can fall down on your face tonight before God and cry out for this beautiful forgiveness that's made available by our high priest who has a greater role, has a greater covenant, has a greater promise, has a greater sanctuary that he administers the promises, has a greater sacrifice that he's sealed the deal of these promises. Come to Jesus. He is better. And if you found this forgiveness tonight, we ought to go out these doors telling everybody about it. Everybody. God help us. In verse 13, in that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The old covenant is becoming obsolete. It's kind of like the iPod Nano that had like two gigs of space and could hold like 50 pictures. And it was replaced by the mini and replaced by the... And now we've got these iPhones and so much space. The first is obsolete. There's a greater, truer, better. The old has passed away. It's decayed. It's worn out. We embrace the new. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.